Hello and welcome back to the Annex Podcast. It's been a little while, but I think all of us have some time on our hands, so I figured uh, why not walk down the hall and invite my roommate Zach Tucker Abramson over to do a little bit of a recording. So that's exactly what I did. And uh, lucky for me, he said yes. And lucky for all of you, he said yes. So for the five people listening, I think we've uh, quintupled our listening ship. That's the word, right? Anyways, enjoy this awesome 80 minute talk, sports, politics, and all the good stuff. Don't wait to fall down to call me up. Cause I can only be on my knees for so long. So long. Okay, we're, we're here. We're here at Center Ice. Yes, welcome. Welcome back to the Center Ice podcast, or the, what we should call the Center Ice edition of the Annex podcast. Annex quarantine podcast. It's true. We are in full quarantine because of uh, COVID-1920, mm-hmm. which is one of the great moments of our lives that we'll tell our childrens. Oh, yeah. So um, I guess I might have introduced you in the, in the intro, but uh, considering we're here, why don't we do a little bit of an introduction for everyone who's listening and already knows us? Mm-hmm. Uh, my name is Zachary, uh, also Koi's uh, roommate, also political, passionate, uh, maybe too passionate about his <laughs> politics, so uh, it should be hopefully not too heated. Oh, I'm hoping it'll be as heated as possible. Oh, that's good. That's crucible. good. We got the right person. <laughs> um, if you're not into anger, maybe... Uh, don't tune in right about now. Uh. Yeah, there's a lot of other podcasts <laughs> that are less angry that you might be able to tune to. Um, I'm sure there's a bunch of uh, very apolitical podcasts that are not about sports. <laughs> and if that's your vibe, you know, go for it. But otherwise, you know, stick around because this is uh, p- politics and sports. Um, which, funnily enough, one of there's absolutely nothing going on in sports. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've, I've just started using Twitter with coronavirus. So that's like my nice, new nice. thing. And I'm seeing like so much uh, highlights on ESPN and everything. And like everyone's just like, oh, this five years ago today, like Kobe did this crazy thing. And like, I mean, it's a, s- a sad reference because Kobe just passed. But yeah. um, or like, you know, random like, oh, this was Isaiah Thomas scoring with the Boston Celtics. And have you been watching any of these at all? Um, funny enough, I have not been watching a lot of highlights. I think I've just been actually a bit too down about this whole lack of sports. So I've kind of tuned out my, uh, my sports viewing. I haven't even watched any of the Raptors repeat games because they've been doing 24 games in 24 days when we won the championship. So yeah, I've kind of shut out sports. Um, I do check TSN every day, which is actually not so healthy because just reminds me that there's no sports. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, if you're into sports, I advise you maybe not checking it out because they just talked about how everyone has COVID-19, so there <laughs> won't be sports. So, you get the double, the world's going downhill, and there's no sports. Yeah. No enjoyment. No, <laughs> no zero no. enjoyment factor. No, no. So, yeah, that must be, that's a big impact because, um, as you said earlier, uh, we're roommates, and very often you're playing uh, any tennis match that's around the world will be on the TV or um, basketball games will be on. We always try to watch a Raptors game when it's on. Um, we'll throw the Leafs games on. 
uh, as we are center ice. It's kind of our obligation. I think it's part of the contract. Um, and yes, yeah, like you're doing absolutely zero sports. Yeah, no, it's hard. Uh, growing up, sports was also a big part of my life, and I can't really play sports because everybody else is isolated. So, yeah, it's a bit. Uh, it's a big adjustment with no sports. It's I don't really watch much TV. Haven't mm-hmm. gotten too much into Netflix. So my TV watching and my entertainment was uh, sports, watching sports and uh, playing sports. So, yeah, definitely a big adjustment. Um, but what's kind of interesting is I didn't realize the impact sports had on so many people. Yeah. Yeah, just like millions of people now just lost a huge amount of their entertainment value. Mm-hmm. And are like very bored without it, and so it's kind of interesting to think like how unhealthy maybe sports is as a passion. Ooh, watching sports Cause just like because it just kind of fills this dark hole, empty void. Like I don't know what to <laughs> do about sports. <laughs> on. Like I'm literally just staring at screens and talking 24 hours a day on the phone because there's no sports to watch. Yeah, we have to we have to resort to talking to each other. And yeah. Maybe paying attention <laughs> to politics—it's ridiculous. <laughs> but I mean, I guess we can. It's only so much you can say about um, the nothingness that is sports right now. I don't know how much we can talk about a non-topic. It's kind of weird. But politics is definitely churning. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a lot going on. A lot going on. Um, is there any exciting news? This is actually. This is. Uh, one of the questions that I like to ask in the mornings is when I get up and Zach has CNN on, I say, what's what's new and exciting in the world, Zell? Um, what's new and exciting? I mean, it's kind of... Uh, I mean, there's always stuff new. Unfortunately, I mean, what, what to me is interesting, especially in America, is what this had brought to light is just like... How insane! I think you can really eat that mic there. How insane the really world is, um, and what you would hope this would bring out is like that people realize the world needs to change. But yet Donald Trump's approval ratings are at the highest they've been, and it kind of makes me very afraid and how depressing politics is. Keep on getting these like waves of hope every day, and then this just these waves of depression. Hearing Donald Trump talk and watching his approval rating, so yeah, lots new, but a lot the a lot is the same old of the kind of weird politics that no matter how many people die or how many people are unemployed or how many people do this, that people either tune it out or just don't care. So you're not bad. We're bouncing on our sound booth. Um, Especially yeah. in America. I mean, Canada's a bit better. Even Doug Ford seems compassionate. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's at least localized a bit to me. I mean, localized to 300 million people in like a major part of North yeah. America. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah it is kind of crazy. I mean, but then again, it's only been two weeks yeah. since the NBA canceled their games and i guess that's weirdly enough like when 
when it kind of became real to most Americans. I'm sure that is the intersection of sports. Yeah. To bring it back, yeah. It was like, you'd think that that the government or, or whether the federal or, or anything would it kind of be the first body to react and force measures, but it was really the NBA that was the one that within the course of, what, two days, they were saying, we're not going to have anybody in the stands, and then, oh, actually, uh, Gobert tested positive, we're shutting it down. And then yeah. all of a sudden, everyone's kind of like, oh, wait, this is a big deal. And then Trump's kind of forced to, like, within the same 48-hour period or so, whether, give or take, a day. Yeah, it was the NBA who made the first move. But it was also, what's interesting about that, it was this... Uh, caused by when you actually think about it, mm-hmm. which is kind of, I think, a uh, symbolic of society, a rich person laughing it off and spreading germs everywhere, probably knowing they have health care, so if they get it, it's kind of a funny thing. They're also young. Right? And they're also young, and so they got it from being an idiot and then spread it to someone in their medical staff who ended up going in a coma. Um, someone on the team. On the team. Oh, a wow. team doctor, not on the team. Well, a team staff, not a right. player. Right. Um, so that forced it to cancel. I think it's kind of an interesting... Like, I don't think someone poor in bad health would uh, find this a joke at the beginning. And so it's actually kind of interesting like to even look at it from sports. like, And even from sports who's getting tested without a problem. Like, athletes have been tested without a problem, yet hospitals are struggling to get testing. Same thing with Canada. Like, we're doing well now with 80,000 tests, I think, this week. Yeah, athletes mm-hmm. get tested. Yeah, Healthy like all athletes the N- yeah. who are probably safe if they get it, get tested at a snap of a finger. All these NBA teams were having everyone tested weeks ago. Yeah, the Raptors got tested without anyone having any symptoms, the whole team. Yeah, almost, I think, every every NBA yeah. team tested them their players if not their whole staff yeah uh and everyone was asymptomatic from the sounds of it at the time yeah uh meanwhile thousands of americans even who had symptoms or who were being hospitalized couldn't get tested it's kind of crazy yeah yeah it is weird and and i guess going back we're kind of this is this is the pivot of the show here sports and politics but you know people on t- on twitter and even, uh, a lot of people are pointing this out kind of saying like well and someone even asked the president it's like, isn't this weird that uh, that NBA teams are able to have tests for asymptomatic uh, players when we can't get tests? And he just kind of said, yeah, well, you know, I mean, at this point, it's all just gibberish to me, whatever yeah. that guy says. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you obviously can't take him seriously. But I mean, I think the same thing's happening in Canada. I'm sure the Toronto Maple Leafs have no issue getting tested. Right, right. Um, but yet, they're severely short. And I bet you millionaires in the healthcare system, I mean, I can't give you any a- evidence, but I bet you if you go into, like Jeff Bezos could get a test whenever he wants, and if you went into the inner city in Cleveland, that clinic has no testing available. Well, I bet Jeff Bezos like owns a few companies that make the yeah. tests. I mean, or he could just buy it at this yeah. point. He'd just be like, oh, well, if you can't give me a test, I'll buy your company, and then you can give me a test. But funnily enough, uh, having I just read this morning that um, Bezos sent a, a letter to his employees saying that uh, while he has ordered masks for his employees, that because of the general shortage around the world, he ha- he can't source them. Right. 
which is kind of ironic considering yep. not only is his company what they do is they source things <laughs> that's yeah, what yeah. they do Great. um but also that uh he is a multi-hundred billionaire whatever sent a billionaire um and and uh, that he can't somehow yeah it's interesting it, it definitely is seeing a lot of uh i mean even britney spears waved the socialist flag to an extent right and seeing yeah. a lot of people kind of say like you know all these all these billionaires for everything they have uh, what can they really like at the most they're offering a little bit of money or like sitting in the rooms with some big people or w world health organization or on the phone with with important people but um i feel like the the big news that we're hearing is like like bauer the hockey uh, equipment um company they're making like face shields for medical practitioners and stuff and frontline workers and we're having these companies that some of them are only eight employees or something and they're they're making thousands of masks a day yeah or a week you know hundreds of masks a day um and yet then you have these billionaires who maybe they, they're throwing some money here or there but like refusing to pay their workers more or refusing to give them masks or it just it's it's surprising it, it, under this strain it really makes uh, someone who has no formal training in economics wonder how the hell anything works yeah like, what is the value of having all this wealth well you hope it fundamentally makes people ask a lot of questions mm -hmm. but uh you know i have a lot of worries about that a lot of worries about that i mean well, what are your kind of hopes and fears about what uh I mean, we can all we all know kind of our hopes and fears about what's happening specifically with the epidemic, yeah. but in a larger context around politics or sports, like what would be your like hopes or fears? Well, well, I, I mean, in politics, I guess my hope is like maybe, just maybe, this will get people to reflect on a whole host of issues, uh, you know, from w what's an economy that actually works and is like so that provides workers actual like what's an actual social safety net inside and outside of work mm -hmm. um like big fundamental questions where like someone doesn't seem so out of left field when they start talking about things like you know uh an a basic income that's more than a thousand bucks a week or like in a snare box or thinking bigger things about like what system of work actually allows people to make a living um and my hope is that we actually kind of learn to be a more empathetic society in general i mean interesting enough speaking of anger i became unempathetic and it like made me question like a lot of things about me and like empathy. And so I'm hoping that like we as a society could take this anger and make us maybe think just about general principles. Um, my fear though is that I'm not seeing it. I mean, that's <laughs> much more, <laughs> you know, it's like all these aspirations, yeah. but in the States, like, it's like, it just seems like the political lines are remaining. Um, Trump is still being Trump. Republicans, for some reason, still are praising his efforts. Like, it just seems yeah. like no one could get across this ideological lines. Um, 
like even around the debate in healthcare, it's crazy the debate at all hasn't moved around public healthcare. Like yeah, even a, even within the democratic circles, like it's not like Joe Biden's lead is chipping away, and that's the only huge divide. Right, or that he's he hasn't even taken up uh, public health care as an issue. Yeah, um, which oh, this is a tangent, but just like the 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 branding of every political issue in America to me is absolutely insane. Is just like like single payer healthcare as a, as a brand whereas every other country that has it they call it public healthcare <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly like, it's a, it's just it's a hypermarket single payer the keyword payer everything yeah. has to have pay in it yeah and then every everything is seems like it's branded by the capitalist right yeah and then the left kind of accepts it like obamacare when it's the affordable care act yeah um, then the left just kind of accepts that. It's like, okay, yeah, we'll call it Obamacare. That's yeah. weird. But I, I mean, it, well, it is interesting, c- kind of, we don't have to go too deep into anything you don't want to, but you mentioned, you know, we were all kind of forced to be, I think there's an interesting thing about um, having all this time kind of forced to be inside. I mean, we're lucky in that, like, we were in a small apartment. Yeah. Uh, we have a backyard though, which is really nice, and it's getting warmer in Canada, which means like you know starting to be above yeah, zero. Yeah, global warming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yay! Um, yeah, and these are the these are the times when you know you have to look at the good side of everything. Yeah. Um, and uh, but yeah, we're lucky. Like we don't have we don't have like kids that are home from school. We we actually are not like super worried about the next few days with the turn of the month uh, and rent and stuff. Um, but. But it is interesting, like listening to you know I'm a big podcast listener, and just listening to Bill Simmons recently, just joking and talking to I think Jimmy Kimmel is about like he's spent the most time with his kids and wife at home like almost ever, and it's like two weeks, and it's just like to me it makes sense if everyone's busy and like Bill Simmons has like a he's doing lots of businesses like he's running the Ringer and all that stuff, but to think that he's never like spent two weeks with his family before is kind of like crazy yeah and that's part of my hopes i mean this whole economic model where everything comes down to productivity and happiness is like yeah such a secondary thought and i mean even from my personal experience having time having time and like Mm -hmm. being unproductive made me very angry and uncompassionate and like yeah it's a it, it should make us question like how how in the world is that healthy to like not have time for your kids, not have time to have fun, not have time to like cook, not have time to do anyway. anything you enjoy and like this this is a moment to reflect on that I mean in Europe it's much better because comparatively comparatively because workers and unions literally would like i mean whether you support these methods or not they're effective would like riot or gen- go on general strikes over things like 30-hour work weeks and having five weeks of vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, in Canada and America, that would be, like, too radical. And I guess Quebec is the most effective province in North America for yeah. that. I mean, not including... I don't underst- I don't. I don't follow Mexican politics. Right. I really don't know. Yeah, I couldn't speak on Mexico. So for sure, it's like, maybe this will make people realize, like, that balance between... Well, and to be fair, like, you, you went from being... You're finishing up school right now yeah. uh so you went from being what were you must have been doing at least 60 hours a 60 week 60 hours a, a week because you were doing yeah. school you're doing placement 
and you were and you were working yeah. basically full time. Uh, well, no, you're probably working at least twenty thirty hours a week plus twenty five. I average okay, twenty five average a week plus uh, going to class for another ten fifteen hours a week plus in like interning for another yeah. fifteen hours a week or so that started at like four in the morning. And then you had homework on top yeah. of that. So you were going nonstop for the last semester or two, at least. Yeah. And and this hard stop, um, I think it affects a lot of people. And I think a lot of people, there are a lot of people out there who are still working, um, yeah. who are still working from home and having to sh- transfer over. Uh, and then there's a lot of a lot of us who are still being forced to work and go in. Uh, and then a lot of us are just laid off or, or everything kind of shut down if you're a student and all of a sudden you have nothing to do. And it's just like, yeah, and then you have to kind of come face to face with what do I do with all this time? And yeah, like getting angry, uh, frustrated because of a loss of like feeling like you're losing what you've been working towards or um, yeah. It, uh, and, th- and I think it is interesting. It's still so fresh Yeah. that we're still, I know that like, for us, I feel like we just started to feel comfortable with this change. Yeah. Uh, in two weeks. And if it sounds like it's going to go on for another few months. Minimum. Yeah. yeah. So it, it looks like hopefully we'll all... You know, I keep thinking about... We've been talking in society kind of on and off for many years now since smartphones came in and since social media came in. Um, this is all since we were in our early 20s, I guess, so for the last 15 years or so, there have been talks about, like, what is what are phones doing and what is social media doing to us as a society and what is it doing to our culture and to our interpersonal relationships and all this stuff. And it is really interesting to see this forcing us to... We can, we can use technology now because of using technology to, to be connected to people, and uh, but also at the same time we're forced to... Uh, stay at home and we're forced to be more aware of the people who like we live with yeah you know like uh, we can't we can't just come home and necessarily hide on a phone or behind a screen or something because we're in the same space all the time with everyone yeah uh, whoever that person is um and i think yeah it will be interesting to see especially with families and and uh couples and uh how this uh roommates you know everyone like us yeah. uh, how it changes uh how we kind of look at interpersonal relationships and like uh hopefully it forces us to yeah open our eyes a little bit again yeah and i mean there's no distractions with like sports like so that's like a big thing yeah or yeah. or like any events like i can't go to a concert and listen to me like yeah. so many of our coping mechanisms um revolved around crowds and or live entertainment yeah like yeah it's kind of it's funny now it's like i mean you know, outside of the technology, it's so much more like the old days in the sense, like, you have to rely on, like, reading and gardening and, like, yeah. you know, like, yeah, there's Netflix and stuff, but, like, you're certainly not going to, like... We can't just be like, okay, yeah, we're, let's have some food and then we're... Go- and also, like, yeah, just the fact that you can't easily feel like you can pop down to any store yeah. at any time because of how this is going. So it is very interesting. I mean, I yeah, definitely a little bit more old school. Like I think about, you know, I'm a big fan of history just as a as an amateur enthusiast, and like thinking about like before cable TV, like is not even that long ago. Like our our parents or grandparents grew up in those times, and like 
what was it like when things were just a little slower in general and and uh let alone before the radio maybe or like what like you know and that's that's the vast majority of every human yeah. <laughs> culture was was living in these times when you couldn't go further than a few kilometers or you couldn't um you couldn't just like spend your time zoning out into into like unlimited sports and unlimited uh, entertainment at all times uh now we're kind of forced to do that I was saying the other day, it reminds me of uh, like traveling across the ocean. People used to have to spend w- like two or three weeks minimum just to get across the Atlantic, even when it was a very viable method of travel. And now we'd be just stuck on a boat for two or three weeks, yeah. which is how long we've been stuck, stuck at home. And we're losing our minds. And yeah. when they were going across the ocean, they wouldn't have had even the things that we're using to stay uh, you know, connected, like phones or like uh, all this sort of stuff. So yeah. it is. It is kind of funny. It's like it's it's hard, but it's also like I mean, especially for us specifically, we're very lucky. Um, it's not that hard, but it kind of it puts into perspective like what do we consider hard and and how lucky we live in the society where like where something like staying at home for two weeks is considered an absolute terror. Yeah. And like, and we're the types of people you, you know. I know that you keep up with like politics. Um. We have friends who do and current events and like lots of people around the world are living in horrific like wartime situations. We have refugees like out of the Middle East from Syria for the last many years. And we're like, oh, no, two weeks without sports. How am I going to live? It puts everything into perspective. Yeah. So I guess, I mean... Regardless of if we act the right way, I think the fact, and that's the thing that blows me away the most, is that it doesn't matter who you are, everyone's being affected. Yeah. Uh, And unlike, you know, even we talk about like the the 99% and the 1% of wealth disparity, um, but the power is, because of that disparity, the power is unequal and who owns everything is unequal. And so even when you have 50% of the population with no money, um, the people who actually have the money and power to do anything or write anything or, you know, put anything on air there, that's not what they're living. So they might not care necessarily, but now we're all forced to do this. Um, and so we're all kind of forced to, to live through it. I mean, that being said, watching, watching NBA players and rich people like have to struggle in their 10,000 square foot mansions is definitely different. Yeah, they're not as you know. That'd be nice. But it's it's also interesting to see the sports world completely unable to adapt. Like the fact that well, the fact that programming is just repeats of sports highlights. You can bring the mic right. Like you would think that like sports, like to me, sports should have a connection to the community, and like the fact that all they can show is like highlight shows, and even like. Right. The few times I've checked in the ESPN and TSN, they like mm-hmm. they can't even have talk shows or talk about the links between like you know like have like interesting documentaries on like the the history of like sports and politics. Like Dave, um, Zion Zion, I'm forgetting his name, has like these whole books on sports and politics and how like kind of started from like these poor communities and yeah. like it's like it's become so corporatized that like the idea that yeah. sports has no role to play for it's this apolitical. epidemic yeah. and has like no 
it's just like an entertainment show versus like that's some a really good community point. mobilization and some force. Well, and the funny thing is, of it, is, it like is that's a really weird. good point because like ESPN is like entertainment, sports, politics, and news, right? Yeah. And like they don't do politics anymore, and people get so mad when they do anything political. Um, and now we're in this crisis where this is what politics is about. Like this is why we have government and this is why we have democracy is like to be able to deal with these things on a societal level yeah and yeah you 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 hear people like who talk about sports and love sports at any point they're like yeah but it's about it's about the community it's about teamwork it's about learning about you know working with each other but it is so corporatized at this point that they're unwilling or unable to to talk about these connections or these relationships during even a crisis like this, because like what it would fear of funding or fear of offending their funders or sponsors or their viewers who might have different political views among them. You know, uh, it is, it is interesting. It's, it's this interesting crisis that's exposing a lot of cracks in the society and putting, I think our society under a strain yeah. where the weaknesses are showing and yeah. hopefully not going to fail, but I think some will. Like, where are, you know, the commissioners, like, GMs fighting now for the, you know, the people working the concession yeah, not to pay stands. anyone, yeah. I mean, they're paying them, but, like... Well, Philly said they were going to not pay every... Yeah, and, and then they got an out... Yeah, there's an outrage, and they kind of... And, like, they could down. build 50,000-person stadiums, but they can't, like, build infrastructure for, like, Well, and even then, they and, ask... Like, there's so yeah. much they could be... When they ask the cities to pay for it, right? Like, it's these teams will ask the cities to pay for these stadiums and then profit off of it. It's insanity. And they're so quiet, and it's just, like, the whole industry just shuts down. Like, I just find it interesting that there's nothing they could talk about, and they can't find a way to link sports to, like, anything besides the entertainment value. Yeah, it's become reality TV at yeah. this point, really. Especially with, the, I mean, we're we're more talking about basketball, but well, yeah, the, the most that we're hearing is like, oh, what are these basketball players doing at home, and like, yeah. how are they living? Because like, they're just these individual celebrities. TMZ, basically. Yeah. On, on steroids. Yeah, and it's 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 exactly like Kardashians. Yeah. Like, like celebrities used to be celebrities because they did something, and then then you get the Kardashians and the. Paris Hilton's who are just celebrities because they're celebrities. And NBA players, when they can't play basketball, they're just now these rich celebrities that we follow because of nothing. Like, <laughs> yeah. they're not even playing basketball anymore. We're still, like, super obsessed. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, unwilling, of course, to... We've had a number of back and forths, especially at the beginning of this season with China and the NBA. And, like, what's the obligation of any of these players to speak out against the actions of a country like China, for example, or like corporations in even their own country. And uh, these players are silent. Like. Yeah, like is Ruby, Rudy Gobert getting punished at all? Like, And he got someone in a coma. And like, what what the Utah Jazz haven't come out with any strong statements. He had alone find him, or I don't know, is like... Well, from what I heard... He's getting completely on it. He's not even getting suspended. I mean, what I heard on the podcasts, I think, was it Woj was talking on his podcast when it first yeah. the first week was that a lot of the players were quite angry at him and like the biggest issue was they're worried about um locker room cohesion like after this and during this because right. a lot of the individuals the staff and the players are pissed 
But uh, it seems like they're kind of like circling the wagons, like nobody, and this kind of speaks to the corporatization of it, or, I mean, you can also argue how much is anyone to blame, uh, but they don't want to blame Rudy, they don't want to punish him, uh, they just want to kind of move on, and like, it's that weird thing about sports where it's like, we're going to hate each other on the court, and we're going to like want to win, but then like, we're all friends, and it's it's easy when everyone, even the poorest people in your organization are making a mint right. you know it's easy for you all to say look at the end of the day we're all having a good time let's let's not hate each other when everyone is literally making millions of dollars yeah um even when it ends up with someone in the coma because you're yeah yeah, yeah. but everyone is just so everyone in the organization whether your staff making just a few hundred thousand dollars a year or your player making tens of millions like uh, or an owner who's you know billions like all these people have so much incentive to avoid any conflict that could fundamentally threaten the structure of their money-making business, yeah. right? Like, if you were to blame Rudy for this coma, for example, because you brought it up, you know, it's tough. Like, would would the law, in a larger extent, blame someone for that if they didn't know what was going on? Like, is that right. criminal? Um, would another company blame someone for that in another situation? Um, individually, obviously members of the family or members of the friends or you know might have very strong opinions about whether he's to blame um but it is it's this it's this tough struggle it's like like well, who do we blame and what is our obligation and like what is the response and all this stuff is becoming really clear like across the board right in in sports and in politics right the politics of civic responsibility yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we manage that? I want to make sure this mic is cut because you, you need oh, to. Oh, sorry. The yeah. The you can adjust it any way you need, but right. you just need to make sure it's you're speaking right into, into it. it. Yeah, no, just the politics of. Ci I mean, this does bring up the politics of civic responsibility, and and how do you manage it? Like yeah, d like I mean, we were talking about this, and now it's obviously a huge discussion. Do you criminalize civic responsibility, and how deep in the state do you go? Around you don't need that, to hold uh, it, I don't um, think. And, like, things about, like, on the Rudy incident, do you criminalize someone being silly because they don't realize the severity of it? Like, like there's all these, like, yeah, this brings up a, a whole host of questions yeah. on that front. I mean, generally, I I think militarizing or policing a state is way too dangerous. But, you know, mm -hmm. when millions of people's lives are at risk, there is a fair point to make out. What point do you say, well, the dangers of militarizing the state are worth millions of people's lives? Well, and it's that's kind of goes to the root of yeah. security versus freedom, right? Yeah. But also, you know, what do you do with the the, the senators and Congress people who sold huge amounts of stock right before, when they were like actively saying this isn't a big deal, and then they're selling off stock? Or even I just read a headline, not the article, because I'm that type of person. <laughs> um, that Bezos sold three point four billion dollars worth of Amazon stock right before this all uh, hit the stock market. Right. You know, so, uh, like, but is that actually criminal or is that just part of the, the market and just right. keeping your thumb on? And anyone, you know, like, my, um, my parents were reacting to this before the government was. Like, my mom was looking at what was going on around the world and kind of was like, okay, like, we need to react personally. So a anyone who's who had maybe stocks in the market that was keeping their their thumb on the pulse, like, could have sold off and, like, seen it coming, especially seeing how the government wasn't reacting. 
So it's not necessarily criminal, but at the same time, like, where's the line? Right. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's clear. I mean, insider trading laws are there, but sometimes it's definitely not clear. Yeah. Well, yeah. especially when, especially when it's like the government's not reacting. Yeah. The way that everyone says they should be, especially yeah. the, like the experts and stuff. Yeah. It's. I mean, so here's here. Uh, like, what do you think is going to go with? Um, what do you think is going to happen with with the election in America? So it's interesting. I, you know, Trump's approval ratings have gone up, but apparently, I just saw a tweet. Um, I'm not sure who it was by, so I can't cite the credibility of it. But apparently, Bush is approval ratings went up after. Uh, 9-11 so president's ratings i think the historical trend is they always go up during the crisis but they could often tank post-crisis when all the impacts hit and it's not in the middle of the crisis yeah, um, wartime so, presidents i think have never been they've always been reelected. i think is yeah the so the question is is there enough time to see the damage and when does this end if he's you know if october rolls around and we're still in peak corona time He'll probably win. I don't think people like change in the middle of a crisis. It's too much uncertainty. Um, right. I think he's obviously handled it like a complete idiot. <laughs> um, but, you know, and the other problem is for Joe Biden, who I, unfortunately to me is, you know, I don't see how Bernie wins, is he doesn't get airtime. He's choked off. And he can't force it. He can't do rallies. He can't do anything. So right. he has no airtime. Well, and he has no idea how to use social media. And he has no idea how to use social media with no airtime. So I'm very afraid. Right. Um, you know, I think if Trump is actually opens up the economy, I think he may lose the election because I think we're getting into the area of millions of people dying. And that's going to start hitting Republicans once they start losing their family. I mean, that has real impact. Right. It is weird to, to actually look that... Um I just saw the New York Times actually created a, a website where they're actually tracking down to the county in every U.S. Yeah. county cases because the American government hasn't, and no American political or public entity has created any statistics like that. So the NYT is doing it, um, but it seems like most Middle America and the red states haven't been as affected as uh, California, New York, Washington. Yeah. Seems like I think they're starting to see a slowdown, maybe, but. Yeah. I know BC is is doing better than Ontario where we are. Um, yeah, so we haven't even seen uh, the virus hit the states that have been the most supportive of Trump and the most uh, shouting that this is a ridiculous Democratic hoax or that this is shouldn't be as big of a deal as we're making it. And I mean, I think it was like two three days before Toronto started to shut things down very severely. One of our friends, uh, who's been on the podcast, Chertid, who's he was even kind of saying like, "Well, this is a bit blown out of proportion." Like the media is kind of being a bit fear mongery. And, and I read a great article. I think it was the Atlantic that said, "You know, this is uh, the media's own fault because over the past many years, regardless of Trump, the media has sensationalized everything and made everything the biggest deal in the world." And there's you can't crank it up anymore when it becomes a real issue. Yeah, for sure. It's hard to know what's. Yeah. So everyone's you know like oh this is you know uh, what's what's affecting you and what could kill you in your kitchen after the break CNN, and they're doing that 
when nothing's happening in the world and now yeah. they're saying like you know you have to stay at home because of covid and everyone's like well do we though yeah and if you're already suspicious and if they've already just like hammered you like this i mean every time i go to the states and i've been going most years of my life it's it's always surprising how much more extreme everything is yeah and then with like reddit facebook you know it's very hard now to figure out i mean as much as i hate the term fake news i think there's some validity in the sense like god knows how many times i've posted articles that have taken a quote that's a completely misleading context mm -hmm. i mean i just did that recently with andrew como that took one or two sentences without mm -hmm. like a about a seven minute interview yeah. well one or two sentences in a seven minute interview is pretty useless and yeah. so you know like when when there's actually one or two sentences that are critical like stay at home people now don't know whether it's true because with all the media and social media, so many things are taken out of context. It's like you have to fact check everything. Yeah. And sometimes one or two sentences are the only important sentences. And so like for sure to the sensationalizing and like all this media and quite frankly, the lack of regulation around what can be posted on these sites makes it really hard right, to get any important message. Mm -hmm. like out. The regulation about what is protected as news and what yeah. is just central as, as sense uh what do you call it sen centralization uh Sen well sensationalized but sensi yeah that's it sensationalization that's what i was trying to say but also what it's just complete garbage <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah uh, it's 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 interesting it's concerning it's uh <laughs> problematic yeah yeah it's so easy to just like i mean as i just said i uh, most of us don't read all the headlines uh, most of us just read the headlines yeah. right and even the best news organizations' headlines are sometimes absolute garbage. Oh, they all are. Because how do you take a ten-minute, how do you take a ten-minute interview or an hour press p press conference and take that into one sentence? You can't. Yeah. There's no way of making a realistic headline. Yeah, and going back as far as Citizen Kane, I mean, everyone knows that, you know, news is about headlines and about, yeah. you know, sensationalizing the news. This has been like a cornerstone of American journalism for a hundred years. Uh, but now we're kind of seeing it gets to this nth degree, yeah. and people just get um, desensitized to it, and so then, then when it actually is something we need to listen to, we don't care. Yeah. I mean, something that I've been thinking of, and this is, I've been trying to figure out the right way to do. It. I think the podcast is the best method because I can kind of explain my idea. It's a bit harsh, but <laughs> just thinking about how, I mean, I'm thinking about. If I were in my 20s uh, or in the late teens, would I be? What would I be doing? Because I remember during SARS, we were in high school yeah. in Toronto, and I didn't give a shit no, about what was neither. going on. And H1N1, I actually was in China when that hit. Oh God! Um, I didn't give a I didn't give a shit about that. Yeah. Um, and so you're seeing young people today, and like I'm now, <laughs> you know, in our early mid 20s and her 30s, are kind of saying like, oh, it's extremely irresponsible. But then thinking of like, would I have actually given a shit or whatever? And kind of like, this is a great opportunity to do all these things where it's empty and like no one's around. Yeah. Um, especially before they officially shut down everything. Um, and and the the extremely devil's advocate, um, Viva la Revolution version <laughs> of this. <laughs> is is like you know um we've just seen this 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 crazy um 
amount of wealth pooled into one small group of people for the most part who are in their 60s and older um and you know the la- like just gutting social services and making everything cost more including education and um uh, that plus more population in general like it's just s- more people have less opportunity than than a generation or two ago let yeah. alone you know 50 60 years ago and uh and so it just makes me think it's all these once as i said again this is very viva la revolution mentality but you know all these all these old rich people who are like controlling the government and companies who are profiting on the ignorance and emotional reactivity of their constituents and workers and uh, they're now telling the young people that like no please you have to do this when literally everything is is kind of fucking over the future of the young people right now especially the working class like anyone who's not super wealthy and like why should the young people give a sheet like <laughs> this is it seems exactly like this is the time when they can say like yeah uh this is how you act towards us every day um you take our wealth and our future and leave us to die and like now we're going to do the same for you right um there i said it it's, yeah it's, yeah it's i know it's i know it's very offensive and problematic well but i mean i mean in a sense i remember my grandparents when my um after my grandfather died and my grandma was still alive we were all sitting in the kitchen and my cousin went to the basement just needed alone time and was we could hear him crying so my grandma went down mm-hmm. and was like also started crying and told my cousin like i am so sorry what our generation did to you no, but just like yeah, this moment of like, you know, like it's it's, it's sad to see see that like the older people who fought, like it's, it's yeah. interesting to live through this. And when my grandparents died, mm-hmm. one of the com- like weirdly comforting things was like for at least me and my dad. I don't know about his sister because she's not that political. It's like my parents our grandparents don't have to live for this. And when Trump was elected, it was like, right. literally, I think one of, we all said, me and my sister and my dad, I was like, oh my God, thank God my grandparents don't Didn't have to, to live this, for yeah. this. And I feel the same thing about now in America. And like, right. it's kind of this dark reality that like, yeah, the world's become so unequal. And like, it's like, yeah, young people, like you could kind of see why they're, like Why apathetic about yeah. the world around them because they're you know most of them have to live like all my friends are working two or three jobs or not all but a lot of them yeah. especially like no offense to my lawyer friends but the who ones aren't who like aren't, yeah. lawyers <laughs> or are doctors. working or doctors are working two or three jobs even like personal support workers yeah. and like people social workers almost every social worker I know yeah. has to. Like, pull together a few jobs and so like yeah it's hard to stay motivated when but again hopefully funny thing though that. is is like i've talked to my um my maternal grandmother is is getting really into watching the news right now i just been calling her on the phone and she's actually been quite uh fascinated with um 
is it Greta Thunberg? Yeah. Um, and and also with Trump in general, and now with, uh, especially with like the impeachment trial that you know didn't happen. Um, but she's been fascinated because she's turning ninety this summer, and so she remembers watching fascism spread across the w- the world. Yeah. And you know when it resulted in war and now she's seeing uh kind of this second wave almost but but she's optimistic about it which is really weird because uh, everyone i feel like around our age is like ve- either they're apathetic or they're super depressed about it or angry yeah. or angry yeah and and my my grandmother's mm-hmm. like you know she's saying like all oh, these protesters were you know coming to see trump land in a in a city in the south and you know it's incredible because you know in the past uh I was amazed that, you know, Trump didn't have military protecting him. And, you know, these protesters weren't trying to shoot him. And, like, it wasn't becoming violent. Uh, and, the P, you know, Trump isn't hasn't militarized his rule yet, or he hasn't, uh, and maybe won't. Um, and the people who are against him haven't revolutionized in terms of, like, becoming violent as well. And so that's for her this really positive side of like this is what a democracy should be is it you should be fighting within the government and using media and, and public discourse right. to to make your points um maybe whoever's winning shouldn't be winning from a certain perspective right now but but the fact that this is resulting in actual dictatorship or uh, you know yeah for her that's uh when when you've lived through watching that happen to italy and germany you know it's it's interesting to see her perspective and uh, I don't know she's she's a very very powerful woman and she's yeah. always fairly optimistic to an extent as well but is, and my mom yeah it's also funny because my mom who came from her parents survived the holocaust wow it's like one things like Trump getting elected or seeing like this kind of thing or anything like you know wars or anything like that gets so depressed because from her experience, it's like, how can something like the Holocaust happen? Yeah. And history repeats itself. So it's interesting how, yeah. and I guess, like, th- this is why to me politics is so fascinating and, like, both s- why I'm so passionate and could get so optimistic in, in one breath and then so angry a second later. It's like, just, like, kind of these juxtapositions, but, like, yeah, just like it's kind of fascinating how two similar experiences with fascism or oppression mm. can like create two pretty different worldviews and your narrative and discourses around events. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's always looking at it's always comparative. Everything is yeah. comparative, right? Is what are, what are you comparing this this to? And and I mean, a fundamental difference is that you know my family is not Jewish. Yeah. So my family didn't doesn't have that same relationship with the Holocaust or with uh, that type of oppression. Right, but in Italy, which like you have, they killed also. I mean, like there's very brutal dictators that killed. My like, family how left much Italy. Mussolini yeah, kill, you know, my family left Italy like thirty, forty years before Mussolini, right. though. So you know, at that point, we were just New York Italians. Right. So at that point, we were just Americans, really. Right. Um, 
yeah, British Americans and Canadians and Scottish Canadians and stuff. Like it was, it was very different. I mean, we do have my paternal grand, my maternal grandfather, who's now passed, was Danish, and so he was a, a boy during the war, and Denmark was invaded by Germany, yeah. and uh, he grew up with, uh, he grew up in an in an occupied nation. Yeah, um, but the difference is that the Danes were considered de facto allies by the Germans because they were white yeah, and they were white Christians. And, and so you had this weird thing where like the only German soldiers that were stationed in Denmark were young, young soldiers and old soldiers. They weren't the warrior soldiers. It was just this kind of like representational occupation. Yeah. Um, so it was a very different perspective on, on Hitler. I mean, every, most of the Danes hated him my grandfather included, but uh, he wasn't a direct threat to the family or, or you right. know, we don't have members of our family that died yeah, because of that, you know. But I grew up with, you know, you and, and other friends who've, whose families have survived the Holocaust and it's a very different perspective for sure. And there are going to be families that will look back in a generation that survived the immigration camps that Trump threw people yeah. in. Which is crazy, um, you know. Like it's, it's not nearly as as ridiculous as as the Holocaust or horrific, but it's it's systemic uh, oppression and isolation and ghettoization. It's not it's, even yeah. Know, I mean, incarceration. It, yeah, it just shows that like, no matter how depressing history is, it doesn't always. The lessons can sometimes be small. I mean, we haven't seen another Holocaust, but we're still. Well, I mean, who are you really looking at, yeah. right? Like, there's Rwanda, there's... Right. So, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, we're still putting children in camps or yeah. in cages. We're still, like... Yeah. You know, Rwanda, like, it just, like... And that's why, like... Ukraine? I mean, like, or, or what is it? Like, there's places in, in Russia and in the uh, Eastern uh, Europe I mean, where, China, like... China, they're killing millions of Muslims. Yeah, like, yeah. Gay people are being... Um, criminalized incarcerated for no reason yeah so it's like i mean i look back on my facebook feed and it's quite a weird feed because there's like these flash moments where you get so optimistic like the women's march and greta thunberg and like mm -hmm. there's a lot of sometimes hope for optimism and then like i get so angry to an unhealthy level and it like makes me want to sure. quit being political um, but like, but that's exactly why you shouldn't, right? Because um, you care. Yeah, but it's just this like, it's I don't know. I find myself always. I mean, maybe it's why I love it because it get, it's that extreme emotion. It's real as well. It's I mean, it's real. It, it's real. Like we talked about how sports, you know, like we lose sports and or sports yeah. they can come and go. And like, the thing about politics is like I studied a, a year of political science, you know, before I <laughs> dropped out of it. And, like, politics is really just a study of power. Yeah. And it's, you know, we're lucky enough that politics represents democratic, constitutional democracy. It's a bit redundant. But, yeah, constitutional democracy for us or parliamentary democracy um, for us. But it's still just, at the end of the day, power. And which is why capitalism is such a big part of it now and why money and corporations have to be included in political theory. Oh, of course. Um, but it's real. Like, it's the political... Um, po like policy, public policy, uh, private policy, all this stuff affects people's lives. 
And at the end of the day, like that's the stuff that makes the difference between having clean drinking water or not, you know, even in, I mean, we feel so good in, as Canadians, but uh, we uh, so many First Nations that yeah. don't have drinking water. And, oh, of course. Um, the missing women, Indigenous women, like all these issues that are still just swept under the rug by Canadian politicians and even politicians who otherwise, I would say, are, you know, better than Harper. Yeah. <laughs> or like some of the Conservatives, but uh, still, yeah, it's, and this is, it's 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 crazy, and that, I guess. But also, the thing about politics is that it's never no one ever wins fully, really. Yeah. Um, you know, there's always there's always people who who could do with more, and yeah, people who are even like it's your point about power, or even good people. Like, I don't think anyone say would say Trudeau like has evil intentions, or if they do, I would question like what they're. But even then, yeah. he like really is all about power. He sneaks this like power grab until Bill that no one knows, and yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I don't, you know, I didn't know about it. And I follow politics very carefully. And, like, the leaders get a bill and it just written in and a lot. It's so much about power. And that's, I guess, what's so scary that, like, even good minded people who don't even, like, Trudeau was a public teacher, which is not to diminish, but I don't think he comes from a place of money and corruption. Well, he comes from a place of He comes from a place of quite privilege. Quite a lot of money, yeah, yeah. He comes from a lot of money and privilege, but mm -hmm. he doesn't come from, like, a professional background of that. And, like, yeah, when he gets the chance to get power, he tries to... Right, and the and, thing and is, and I mean, but that's the weird thing, right? Like, whether... study of politics yeah. that even good people... Whether you like a... Or novel, yeah, whether you like a politician or you dislike a politician, yeah. like, all the good politicians in terms of defining good as effective... Yeah. All the good politicians take power and yeah. use power when they have it and, and figure out ways to leverage power. And that's that's what it defines an effective politician, which yeah. you could just define as good. Um, whether you agree with it or not, that, that's subjective to a large extent and ob objective when it comes to a certain amount of politicians and <laughs> I would I would argue that there are some things even in current political discourse that are objectively wrong. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, opinions, right? Yeah. It's, it's like one group of people with what they believe is right. And well, so, yeah, it has to come down to like, well, how do you leverage power and how do you, cause you need power to affect change. And that's, yeah. what's kind of crazy is, is, uh, you know, say what you want about Trudeau, but like he's trying to get power because he believes he can affect change better. Yeah, uh, I think Harper believed the same thing. Uh, I vehemently disagreed yeah but that's i assume that that's what he believed I, I don't believe any any politician thinks they're doing evil or thinks that they're like most don't <laughs> well i think i think that they just believe that their version of what's right is more correct than uh, anyone else's saying, yeah. you know I, but i don't think that they think they're they're being assholes or, or if no. they do that they think that the the good that comes out of their actions is right more valuable than the bad yeah you know, w whatever makes them convince themselves of that. Yeah. You know, usually I'd, I'd prefer if, if data is what's convincing them, myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is also why maybe we should start the, you know, Zach for Mayor podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, I, it's it's one of those. It's, I mean, it's not an issue of me getting into politics. It's one of those things where I might 
what's holding me back about it is uh, we've talked about this a lot about party politics, yeah. which is every system but a mayoral system. Because my passion for politics, I don't think I could ever be in a whipped system. I don't like the idea of half to voting for a certain position, whether I agree with it or not. I mean, it's not no, you something don't have I'd to. be comfortable with. I mean, I, you could run as an independent, but in Canada, that's like very few. Well, you can also vote against it. your party, but then you're just basically like kicked out ki- or, or ignored, yeah, backbenched. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole interest, but that's a whole other podcast. But like, it's one of the things that like I've, I've debated, like, do I go back to school for like politics? And well, the thing is, you don't need to, right? Like, like you don't like there's famously the only the only American president who had a degree in political science was Woodrow Wilson. Right. who created the League of Nations, which failed and then became the United Nations after the war, right? Like, no no political scientist is ever actually a politician. No, they're usually lawyers or doctors or yeah, business people. Maybe they're helping in policy development, yeah. but, you know, the, the people who are actually representing, um, often they're lawyers, especially <laughs> liberals. Like, all the liberals feel like they're lawyers or business people. It's a quite funny to see the breakdown as I'm getting more into... Um, local politics myself, like learning more from you and and uh, Alberta uh, about how like th- you can kind of look at the candidates and like who like what their education, what their ex- work experience is, and you can be like, oh yeah, that person. You don't even need to know their party. You can just be like, oh, that person like used to be a lawyer, like they're probably a liberal. Like, oh yeah, that's correct. Or, like this person used to be a business person, they're probably a conservative. This person like worked in like the, pu- the public sector, and like oh yeah, they're probably an NDP. And like for the most part, it's it's, it's quite very accurate. Yeah, it's I like re- very weird. Well, I remember when I was on the board of a community legal clinic, we at like all the clinics came together, and we were trying to figure out in a provincial election who would be the Ministry of Attorney General for each party. And they're like, okay, if the conservative one, there's a lot of people could be like over thirty. If the liberal one, same thing, like a huge list. If yeah. the NDP one. There's only three people who could possibly <laughs> be attorney general because there's only three people with like qualified who were lawyers. <laughs> so like, a, yeah, yeah, it's a very accurate point based on yeah. just like the candidate. Well, and if you were to go for a city council or or mayor, even you know, probably city council first, right? But you know, you don't need no. to have a business degree or a law degree. You know, you no. just it's about unifying constituents. Yeah. Um, so I yeah. Know. Can I hold my anger? And as Cohen Alberta know, in politics, it could sometimes be very hard for me to hold my emotions. Well, and I think as as Bernie's shown us, like as Bernie's shown us, you don't and Trump as well. You know, you don't need to hold your anger back uh, to an extent. Um, The question is, is is can you can you uh, still stay open to to hear hear other points? Yeah. And that's the thing that anger does to all of us. Is, yeah, is shuts anger shuts us down. Yeah. You know, so, we, so we don't listen anymore. Um, but but it's it's one of the reasons why a lot of people, including myself to an extent, like Bernie. A lot of people like Trump because of it when he yeah. was running. Um, a lot of people like Greta Thunberg because she has this like righteous indignation, yeah. uh, anger. Um, it's a powerful unifier, I think. Um, almost every successful politician, especially coming out of you know even w- the war, 
uh, used anger to an extent to unify people. Often they used it going towards some pretty dark <laughs> places, oh, but yeah. I think you can use it on the left. And I think that's that's I'm what I'm most interested in is seeing how the political um, discourse or the political kind of brand is, is not the right word, but like the, the the strategies of Democrats, of NDPs, of the political left, where they're going to go, because it seems to me like it's just, um, I mean, we're seeing it around the world. It's ineffective. It's, yeah. it's not winning. It's losing. And so is it is it about mimicking the political right strategy, which a lot of people, uh, my friends on the left, are saying that's exactly not what we should be doing? Um, or is it kind of developing different strategies? Or And how do you do it when the whole point of the left is to embrace pluralism and embrace yeah. difference? And, you know, one of the, the strong things we've talked about about the Republican Party is how unified they are, regardless of whether any of them believe in the leader of the party. They stay very unified. So yeah, it's hard because, I mean, you look at Bernie. He hasn't. He's gonna lose the Democratic nomination twice. Yeah. Um. Yeah, we've never seen him in a general election, so it's hard to tell if that's just that really primary tell. strategy. And then we looked at um in the UK, uh, Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn, where he dominated the equivalent to the primary and then got quashed. Multiple times, In right? the general, so yeah. it, the left's in a bit of a bind because one idea was, well, you get people to vote who didn't vote. You build up a voting base, and Corbyn tried that, and they didn't come out in the general. So I think the left has to decide, do they want a l strategy of long-term success where they take a beating for a number of elections and build up that base? Right. Because when you build up a base, you're going to have low turnout because bases don't turn out overnight. It takes a lot of groundwork and yeah. community organizing and political organizing. Um, they may turn out in a primary, but to be motivated to the polls is a long-term strategy. Or do they want to win and keep the status quo for a long time with someone like Biden, but it didn't work with Hillary? So I think if the, you know, I tend to think like for the better of society, you embrace the long-term strategy, but then they have to realize that they may lose some elections and take short-term losses for long-term gains. You you don't build the movement overnight. You right, don't like build the, the ground game overnight. It just the, the Philadelphia fact. 76ers strategy. It's embrace the process. Yeah, <laughs> it's like you don't know, but it's true. In sports, it's a good analogy. In sports, you don't go from the worst to the best. You don't win yeah. a chance. You don't rebuild a minor league to your pro team winning yeah. in a year. It often takes eight or nine years, especially in baseball. Right. I mean, baseball has. 20 different minor league teams right you know like you have to develop and you have to yeah and you need a strong infrastructure i mean that's what's what's interesting right now um what i've heard about the ndp and in, in the federal ndp is um you know in selecting singh who seems like a really personally seems like a very strong candidate yeah. but i guess if you were to if you for the people who aren't fully in support of him he's kind of a um uh who's that who is the uh congressman out of texas uh betos oh beto o'rourke beto o'rourke he's yes i guess the, the most the most critical i've heard is that uh singh is kind of like a beto o'rourke type of candidate where like he had one or two good social media posts where he was speaking publicly and all of a sudden he got this uh backing but he doesn't necessarily have 
um, uh, as much you know experience or credibility yeah. but I mean you could say the same thing about Obama but the big thing is that um, the people like the the sinews the infrastructure of the federal party the people who aren't elected who who work there they didn't like that Singh was there and a lot of people dropped out and a lot of people stopped supporting or stopped giving money or or swapped parties or and these are people who aren't elected candidates these are just like yeah. the people that you need because they have relationships or and also we're seeing people retire you know yeah. people who who built these long-term relationships um the institutional knowledge and wisdom of these parties uh especially on the left like is it being maintained yeah. is it is it being handed off but properly that's that's a big fear but part of a leader's role is to rebuild so uh, that's part of the short-term gain so it'll be interesting mm -hmm. to see I mean, I think a true remark of a or measure isn't what politicians do, especially since really young. I think for Bernie, you know, if he won, he'd have to win an election. He's 80. He does that yeah. all the time. But since very young, I, you know, I think. But do you to, think he'll stay the leader? Yeah, or? I think they'll give him some time. I mean, you have to remember Jack Layden's first election. He had less than, I'll say, I don't know the exact number, mm -hmm. so I'm going to go less than 25 seats. Um, and he he rebuilt that whole organization and i'm sure right. the same thing the first election there's no organization because he let people go people retired he had you know and then he he's the first leader to get them to official opposition and a very strong official opposition right. and so that's kind of what i'm saying the left has to realize that like if the strategy is to rebuild which i think it needs to be you're probably going to lose some elections i mean look at what happened with the republicans on the state and local level they were you know they now have won all these state and local elections because they yeah. rebuilt their whole state and local infrastructures yeah and so this you know i i mean i think i mean the scary thing is that the republican party has has kind of married with the fundamental religious um network yeah. in middle america and with um you know, the, the, for lack of a better word, <laughs> racist communities, you know, and like, like, so these, they've taken a lot of uh, poor working white people and Christians and kind of weaponized their feeling um, left out from the plurality of what the left is trying to say yeah. uh, and uh, feeling disconnected as as our society is becoming more inclusive in general or trying to become and kind of you know turning that into a unifying force i mean that's what all successful nationalists do and so it's you know and i think that's what's also what i guess what's scary about and this is where it comes to like what's the strategy of the left because yeah. i don't think that's a viable strategy for the left when we're seeing what's happening with the Republicans is they have a party now that arguably for, you know, gives the benefit of the doubt to a lot of these Republican representatives and people who are, who are life Republicans and um, who just work for the party, let alone, you know, maybe they're not, uh, maybe they're just employed, you know? Yeah. Um, they probably don't all believe in what their party leader says. No. And not. they might, some, some of them might be even working against, uh, some of the actions of and the direction of what's going on and think that it's kind of out of control. The classic example is Lindsey Graham, never like Trump. 
Right, and then well, now he's become this like vocal supporter, exactly. right? But yeah. I think that there's a lot of a lot of representatives who are just silent publicly, yeah. who are kind of like stuck in this party loyalty. Um, let alone the people who are working for the representatives, right? Yeah. Like this is their job. And what do you do when the party starts to, you know, you're riding a tiger, right? The Republican Party is riding this, this crazy out of control tiger that is rage and xenophobia and racism. Though yeah. I'd push back a bit against that. The Democratic rebuilding project hasn't worked to an extent. They've, I think, smartly focused the DNC at least. Mm-hmm has focused a lot more on state and local elections, and those have been going... I mean, there's obviously a few exceptions. There's the Georgia's house races that they were in play, and they didn't do well. Mm -hmm. Um, But they've generally been going really well. Um, They just... You know, New York, they've... I think have supermajorities. Washington, they definitely have a supermajority now for the first time. Virginia's flipped both... House and Senate for the first time in governorship. I mean, they've won a handful of governorships, including in, K- in Kentucky, a super red state. So I think they're focused on those levels. I mean, mm-hmm. and which is interesting because under Obama, people forget that the only thing they were winning with presidencies and getting wiped off the map in every other. Right. So they're actually doing a lot better than they did. You could make an interesting argument they're doing a lot better now than they did under Obama, except. Now you have Trump, right. so like, yeah. which has a lot more global damage. Yeah. Um. So sometimes we we overlook the national level, or we look at the national level and overlook everything else because Democrats were yeah. Well, in general, as a Canadians, we look at America as opposed to looking at Canada. I mean, that's that's the most fascinating. Or in Canada's thing. The opposite, we have Trudeau, who's like. I mean, it's not like a Center radical left. left. You He's could argue, yeah. Compared to Canadian and. American politics he's left, but provincially it's almost all conservatives. Yeah. So it's like flipped in Canada, which is which is very scary. Yeah. Like the only progressive government in Canada is in BC. Right. And I think literally every province has elected a conservative PC. That's crazy. Yeah, it's government. weird. It's weird, and it, and it's like it, it is strange to see it happening across the world, yeah. right? Um, I mean, what I've what I've thought for a while now, and I said it to a few people, but the idea that we kind of are living in this place where um, the wealth, the wealth distribution in the world in general, is really focused on Europe and North America, yeah. um, and so it's very interesting to kind of say like you know ninety nine percent versus one percent of Americans, but then you look at the world and you're saying like you know fifty percent of the wealth in the world is in North America or something ridiculous. Like I'm I'm just making up the yeah. stat, but I've you know there's some good stats out there that can show this. Um, and all the labor is coming from, you know, Asia and uh, kind of Africa, I guess, like resources from Africa and products from Asia. And um, it makes me think of uh, pre-revolutionary France, you know, with this like high, everything is like highly structured. Uh, the aristocrats have gotten to this point where they control everything still, but the aristocrats right before um, the fall of the French royalty like had no money as a class. And it was this weird thing where I remember as a kid being like, how can you have the highest class of people that represent 10% of the population have all the power and the buying power yet be all broke? 
Like, I don't understand that. And, like, these stories of, you know, aristocrats living in rundown mansions and, and estates. Like, how does that work when people are still broke? Right. Uh, and the peasants have no money, you know? Like, and like, w- how does this work at all? And then we look at America, and, you know, most Americans, 40% of Americans or whatever, 60% of Americans can't afford a $400 shock is uh, what the stat's been wow. going around yeah. recently. Um, and so how can the richest country in the world still be basically uh, on the verge of bankruptcy or, you know, constantly in debt uh, as an individual's? And so it just reminds me of this weird, like, to me, th- what that represents is that this is a, a system, it's now global as opposed to, like, just the state of France, yeah. um, that it can't stand this way, you know? Yeah. And uh, with France, what happened was a horrific revolution. Yeah. Um, but I don't think we can, we can't, as a Western states, Western nations, hold on to all this wealth while still being broke and forcing the rest of the world into absolute poverty and... Like, it, it just, it doesn't stand. Well, yeah. I mean, you asked me earlier what what is the implication for 2020, but I think, I mean, you know, the, there's been tons of political talk about, will this lead us into Great Depression, and is it worth it yeah. lifting everything because of that? But I think one of the questions that hasn't been talked about, mm-hmm. and I don't have the answer, but one of the big questions that hasn't been talked about are, what are the, uh, like, very long-term political ramifications yeah. Like, wh- you know, and people are, you know, think that as you're saying this probably won't cause a revolution. And while I don't think there's going to be like a military coup, you know, if if this does go into a Great Depression or if million, literally if millions of Americans start dying yeah, for, because of, let's say, hunger, like yeah. what are the long term politi- political ramifications is a huge question and the question yeah. that I think seriously it needs to be like fought up because i think there's massive potential for hopefully progressive political ramifications but there's like you know well the thing with about like like what happened with the spanish flu whatever i don't know i'm just phrasing it as a question what were there massive political ramifications you know 20 years after the spanish flu or did life just return to normal forever yeah and i don't don't know the answers to that uh, specifically but i mean the big thing about Going back to the revolution, and, and there's a great podcast about the, I think it's called Revolution Podcast yeah. or something like this, and they had a like a massive, like dozens of hours about the French Revolution. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting when you go into it that level of detail is that the revolution wasn't, like we think about it as like there was a big riot and they killed the king and right. then they kind Never of started this new thing. Way. And, like, there were a number of riots, and there yeah. was also, like, counter-riots. And then there was, like, like it went back and forth for years. And then there was Napoleon, which was basically a dictatorship. And then, finally, they became uh, what we consider, like, the beginning of a democratic state. So, uh, in the long term, the revolution was good for progressive politics. Um, but in the short term, a lot of people died. Like, yeah. a, there were numerous coups. There was like, a lot of really, really bad stuff. And... So these political upheavals, whether the revolutions or not, like first of all, they're not fast, no. right? They they have they have moments, but there's they they go across years, um, and and really, they're these long tumultuous periods where people pick up um, and then become, you know, the people who who are young during the tumultuous times are the ones who end up being the founders 
of the next right. system. I mean, Washington is the best example, right? Like, Washington was a general of a rebellious army, uh, you know, fighting against the king, and then he became the first president. But uh, I don't think he was the one who started the rebellion. No. You know, um, and it took a lot of people to start this fight, and then the champions of the fight then kind of groom the next people who have to then found that new system. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, those are the fastest ways to affect change, even yeah. then. But we're also like, like, I just can't imagine millions of people dying or a Great Depression without. I'm not even talking about a revolution in terms of like a violent getting rid of capitalism, but I think about the Great Depression and the huge social safety net legislation that passed. Like, there has to be a fundamental. Well, actually, funny. So, change what I do know about the the Great Depression is that, you know, the Great Depression is is when FDR um, passed, yeah, passed all this huge amount of to. social reform. And I would call that a revolution, not a capitalism end. No, but it was like. Well, what I was gonna, what I was gonna say in response to that actually is that um, it was because of, like, what the capitalists did was they created the two term limit. Right. Right, like they created this con- this constitutional amendment because, yeah. um, and the only time this was affected was because there was a popular socialist yeah. leader who who created these systems that we're relying on right now. You know, during COVID, um, uh, I find that fascinating. You know, like like what I think what we saw there was you saw this this unification around fairly. You know, you could call it socialist policy um, in what he was doing and trying to keep people together and bring the country out of depression. And he got three terms. And uh, then all the power brokers unified their consti- their representatives and lobbied to create this constitutional amendment. Yeah. Um, and that's what shows it shows you the power of capital, right? Yeah. And the power of, of the funders and the people... Um, and then I guess the side that for the side that we have to kind of also acknowledge as as people on the left is that like uh, at the end of the day, people with money are still people, and like demonizing people who run companies just p- for the sake of having a company is inherently a losing position. And I think that's also an interesting yeah. position. Is like just because they have money and they they have a business doesn't mean that they're all of a sudden evil people, right. but. Uh, yeah, I guess that's why we have government is to kind of balance the people who have the power and the people who don't. Right. <laughs> is yeah. The idea. So, yeah. That's, I mean, the tactical strategy is, has been a long historical debate. Yeah, that's. I mean, the Great American Experiment, yeah. right? So I guess this is the next chapter in that experiment for America, at least, and we'll see. I mean, I think this was a great. Uh, we've gone for a good uh, eighty minutes. Nice. So. Um, yeah, for everyone who who's been stuck with us through this whole <laughs> <laughs> meandering podcast, I mean, I guess no one has much to do today. Um, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Uh, let us know if you enjoy it. Uh, you can do that by, I don't know, tweeting at the Annex Podcast. Yeah. Why don't you go hashtag Annex Podcast? Um, we'll pretend that we're monitoring that. And... Um, you know, I think we're going to do more, maybe. maybe. That's uh, rocky, you know. We'll do more. Uh, we'll uh, maybe do some over uh, technological 
formats of, of our friends. Yeah, we'll get some we'll get some people involved. We might even start a campaign um, for Zach for city councilor. <laughs> you know, try to get him um, a seat at the table, as it were. You know, to be in the room where it happens. Um, and uh, you know, as always, the cat was ignoring us the whole time. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Um, I'm kind of seeing how long I can have this goodbye go on for, really, at this point. No, thanks so much. Thank you, Zach, for joining uh, me, uh, for walking down the hall to my room. It was a journey. It's a journey. It's a full journey. You ready for love? Can't better look into my eyes. I'm messing up in your thighs Maybe I got some nose Ain't nothing wrong with one But the best thing's coming too Don't wait till you're lonely to love me Don't wait to fall down to call me up Cause I can only be on my knees For so